Welcome to Book Me, Conversations with Writers, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, our host, Costas Halabrezos, will be speaking with Jamie Simpson. Take away the supermarkets. Take away the farmer's markets. Take away the restaurants and fast food joints. Where would you get your next meal? If you're stumped, you'll find a wealth of answers in Jamie Simpson's Eating Wild in Eastern Canada, a guide to foraging the forests, fields, and shorelines. And even if you don't consider yourself the outdoorsy type, Jamie's book is wonderfully accessible and informative, even if you don't know a chicken of the woods from a crowberry. Jamie Simpson is a forester, lawyer, and writer with a passion for exploring our natural world, and sometimes eating it. He's the author of Restoring the Acadian Forest, a guide to forest stewardship for woodlot owners in eastern Canada, and Journeys Through Eastern Old Growth Forests. Jamie has received several awards for his conservation work, including the Elizabeth May Award for Environmental Service, the Environmental Law Prize from Dalhousie University, and the Honor in the Woods Award from the Nova Scotia Environmental Network. Jamie Simpson, welcome to Book Me. Thanks for having me. You grew up in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, on the Bay of Fundy. How early do you think you started foraging? (laughs) Yeah, well, it did start early. I was probably maybe around 10 or 11 years old. and, uh, And somebody gave me a book about foraging that was actually written for kids, um, you know, those uh, maybe those were the good old days where a parent could say, <laughs> go play in the woods for a day and, and here's a book that can help you find something to eat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was called uh, Lobster Pots and Sea Rocket Sandwiches. And it was all about foraging along the shorelines, again, written for kids, illustrated with these lovely little family of uh, some sort of animal, maybe they're hedgehogs or something. <laughs> um, but each page had a different adventure. Well, where these uh, little animals were out going and maybe um, picking beach peas or uh, digging clams or catching a flounder. And I was just completely captivated uh, by this book. And so I would actually take it with me and, and go and uh, learn about which plants I could eat and, and uh, sometimes bring them home for, for a bit of a treat. And, but uh, what were some of the earliest things you dared to eat in the wild? Um, well, there's a, there's a plant called sea rocket, and it kind of, it, in the mustard family, and uh, and the leaves have this nice kind of spiciness to them, um, and the seed pods are, are extra spicy. And sometimes I would dare my friends to eat one of these pods and see the reaction <laughs> on their faces. <laughs> now, it's one of those things I believe, like so many uh, wild foods, have lots of aliases, more aliases than your average bank robber. Yeah, well, many many common pl- uh, many plants do have various common names, and uh, so for example, uh, service berry uh, has oh gosh, I don't know how many, but uh, shadbush, shadbush, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the the list goes on: mayberry, juneberry, wild pear. Um, yeah, so and, and sea rocket, yeah, I'm sure it does have a variety of common names too. Now, your forestry background provided some insights in this book that that would really save first-time foragers a lot of time. You narrow down the places to look. Hmm. What are some of those tips? Yeah, well, certainly the seashore has some of the best abundance of wild edible uh, foods, uh, plants, and of course, a lot of the, um, you know, the shellfish and the the other sort of life that we find along the seashore. Um, uh, So there's a tremendous number of plants. And then we have uh, things like periwinkles and various types of clams. Um, You know, we want to, you know, you want to make sure that you 
collect them at the correct time, and you and you make sure that it's a it's a it's a beach that's open to shellfish collection. Um, but then we also have uh, different seaweeds that are edible, like kelps, uh, sea lettuce. Dulse, of course, Irish moss, um, all of you know, a tremendous amount of life along the seashore that's edible, um, and then probably um, uh, fields for uh, or or the edges of fields. Uh, hedgerows often have a number of. Um, why of wild why plants. are they so fruitful for foraging? The edges. Yeah, good good question. For whatever reason, a lot of the edible um, you know shrubs with edible uh, berries um, or uh, you know the variety of edible foods, and I don't know exactly why, but they do seem to like the edges. Edges tend to be diverse habitats because you've got sort of the mixture of, of open area and forest kind of coming together. And so that, uh, that edge environment just seems to create this diversity and, and very, um, you know, as you say, fruitful <laughs> spots for looking. And you talk about the notion of forest communities. How important is that to, to foragers? Yeah, so identifying a forest community. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so in our in our native forest here, we have a variety of uh, forest ecosystem types. Um, we have forests that are more dominant to say hardwood trees, and some that are more dominant to, to softwood. And uh, and so knowing the habitat that the particular food you're looking for likes will obviously increase your chances of finding uh, those uh, those species. Um, I, if, with wild plants or, or with wild foods generally, it's uh, they have spaces in uh, in time and and in space yes. <laughs> so it's a it's really a question of learning where they like to grow and and when they like to grow and um, and knowing those two things you can kind of uh, build up this mental map both in space and time of when of when and where you can you can do these collections there's also good news in your book uh, for people who think Japanese knotweed is going to take over the world. <laughs> what would you advise the urban forager to do with Japanese knotweed and when? Right. So it's uh, it's a springtime uh, wild edible. And so you collect it when, when the shoots are growing up from the ground, maybe you know up until a height of about a foot or so, about 30 centimeters. And, uh, and you can take them, you can... You you can eat them raw. They're maybe a bit uh, a bit sharp for for eating raw, but you can cook them almost like a, like rhubarb, for example, and make them into like a, a stewed vegetable. Um, you can put them into desserts. Uh, some people mix them into uh, like pasta dishes. So a whole whole variety of you've uh, done all this have, in your test kitchen, have you? Yes, I haven't tried it with the pasta yet. Mostly, I've used it in kind of a sweet uh, sort mm -hmm. of dishes. Yeah. Now, there's a wonderful range of wild mushrooms in Atlantic Canada, but we all know the downside if you eat the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What's your advice on getting comfortable about foraging for mushrooms? Yeah, the best the best thing you can go that you can do is to go out with someone who who knows these mushrooms, um, and that can show you uh, which you know which are which. And you don't need to learn all the mushrooms by any means. The key thing to do is to focus on uh, focus in on a few species, um, such as, for example, chanterelles and um, and maybe some of the bolides or oyster mushroom, and uh, and get very comfortable with what those specific mushrooms are. Um, it's also not a bad idea to learn about some of the most poisonous ones, <laughs> yeah. so you can kind of learn like the two ex uh, the two extremes. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's not. It's not that difficult, and there's no reason, like with, with a little bit of knowledge, there's no reason not to feel comfortable about collecting some mushrooms. And I think if you look around the Maritimes, there are occasionally short courses or, or workshops offered by people on, yeah. on foraging for mushrooms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there are a, a few people that offer um, offer courses on, on uh, foraging generally, in, including mushrooms, and, uh, and that's, that's a great way to get an introduction.
Now, I did mention Chicken of the Woods earlier. Tell us about that and where you're likely to find it and what you do with it when you do. <laughs> so it grows on hardwood trees. Um, oak is one of the trees that it's often found on. Um, it's not a common mushroom here in the Maritimes because we don't have a lot of the habitat that it, it tends to like. Uh, but certainly looking through hardwood forests would be the, the place to look. It can be... Basically, you slice it up and and cook it as you would like slices of chicken. <laughs> okay, um, and uh, and you just like stir fry it or fry it up, and it's it has this kind of um, almost a meaty texture and almost a bit of a meaty flavor. It's it's a it's well, it's skinless, boneless chicken. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, why are some mushrooms associated with certain trees and not others? Yeah, well, there there are these relationships, these symbiotic relationships that, um, and symbiotic meaning that uh, that each organism benefits from the relationship. Yeah, it's a win-win relationship. A win-win situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and so so many species of mushrooms, including chanterelles, uh, have this symbiotic relationship with certain trees, and so you'll tend to find them growing where those trees grow. And uh, so for chanterelles, you often find them growing with uh, with uh, white spruce, for example, uh, or red spruce and um, and also yellow birch. There's been a lot of interest over the past decade or two about shaga. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's a mushroom that grows, it's a fungus that grows on birch trees, uh, mildly parasitic, so it's, it's not a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah, they grow on birch trees and Used by cultures around the world, really in the uh, in the northern parts of the of the world, um, and it's used mostly for making a tea, uh, and then of course some people use it for making certain medicines. But the the way I use it, I I steep it in uh, in hot water and and uh, and make a tea from it, and it's yeah, it's really quite tasty. But but speaking of something like shaga, the the popularity took off when people started making all kinds of health claims about it. Mm. Uh, what can you do to prevent? over-harvesting and, and to ensure that, say, you don't keep a species of mushroom from from regenerating because you've taken too much. Yeah. And uh, shaga is is unique in, in the mushroom, uh, in the fungus, uh, edible fungus world in that um, usually when we harvest a mushroom, it's kind of like the, the taking an apple off of an apple tree because most of the mushroom is actually growing underground and we're just taking the fruiting body. Um, so less of an impact. But with shaga, it's actually the, um, the, the body of the fungus itself. And so if you take all of it, then, then, that's, then that fungus is killed. Um, it's, it's done. And so it's really important with shaga just to take a portion of that mushroom and, and uh, of that fungus and make sure that you leave a good si- chunk of it on the tree. I guess the, the most accessible wild food can be found in town as well. Every year when you see those fresh young tips of conifer trees, mm. what are some of the ways you can use them? Yeah, they they are a really interesting flavor, and of course, it's the or the light green shoots that come on conifer trees, hemlock or or spruce, or that would be the common ones, F- uh, balsam fir as well. Although they have a bit of an extra bite to them, um, and uh, and when they're really soft and tender, you can uh, you can collect them off the trees. And uh, one of the one of the best ways I've had them is in uh, shortbread cookies. So you you chop them up mm-hmm. uh, very finely, and then just put them into uh, your shortbread dough and and cookies, and they just have these wonderful kind of like like uh, like woodsy <laughs> flavor to them. Uh, really, yeah, it works really well. And and it would be a nice contrast with the the sweetness and the the floweriness of the sh- the shortbread. Exactly, I guess. exactly. And and th- there's also a, a savory approach. I know in the book you mentioned you could chop up those fine young tips and put it in mayonnaise. 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that, and, it, and it's a really neat addition to a to a sandwich. Your your tuna yeah. salad sandwiches will never be the same after that. <laughs> That's what, right. What, what what the sweet applications of those tips? Yeah. So some people turn them into like candied um, treats, um, which I haven't done myself, but I've heard that really tasty. Um, you know, I've I've had it in the in the in the shortbread cookies. I've also heard of people. Um, um, putting them in a, in a smoker and uh, and smoking them and then kind of grinding them up and just having them like as this sort of smoky woodsy uh, seasoning for mm-hmm. uh, for different dishes. Now, we mentioned the the risky mushrooms. What about risky trees out there? If you're looking for these young tips, yeah. So um, if you're in the forest and uh, and you're and you're harvesting from a tree, uh, nothing to worry about. Um, but uh, but if you're in sort of residential areas, um, we do have an evergreen shrub. Um, U, it's it's known as the Y E W. Yes, Y E W U, and uh, and and its foliage is poisonous. So you don't want to consume the tips of uh, of U. What are your favorite finds along the coastlines? Oh well, gosh, um, you know I love collecting uh, uh, huckleberries uh, grow along the shore. Love picking huckleberries, cranberries too, of course. But in terms of the seashore, my my all time favorite is uh, so- soft shelled clams, and uh, it's the ultimate treasure hunting experience <laughs> uh, to dig out some of these soft shelled clams and bring them back for a meal. Some chefs like uh, Jacob Lutz uh, at Port City Royal in St. John make a real point of including uh, foraged food in their menus. How widespread is that in Atlantic Canada? Yeah, well, I don't think it's, you know, it's not super widespread, but boy, it's becoming more and more popular. It's neat to see, uh, you know, these restaurants, these chefs um, kind of really embracing this frontier of, uh, of wild foods. And, uh, you know, like some of the, se- the chefs say, you know, there's no book that really uh, teaches us that we don't learn about this stuff in school. And so we're kind of experimenting and, uh, and discovering these things, which, which for them is, is, is a really exciting opportunity. An earlier book of yours, uh, Journeys Through Eastern Old Growth Forests, really illustrated your concerns about harvesting practices. Mm. Are we moving any closer to a sustainable forestry model? Boy, uh, I'd I'd like to believe so. Um, in Nova Scotia, here we have uh, we had this we had a recent uh, independent forestry report conducted by uh, Professor Leahy uh, from King's College, and uh, and I think that if the government were to really embrace and implement the Leahy report, then we would see um, a meaningful shift towards towards sustainable forestry in Nova Scotia. You know, so far we've yet to see that actually come into practice, but. Um, but still hopeful that the government will em- embrace that. Some people seem to believe we won't really start looking at seriously at alternatives until we get past uh, industrial forestry and things mm. tied to the, the pulp and paper industry. Right. Well, that, that could well be. And certainly a shift towards a more of a value-added product-based uh, uh, forest products industry would be, would be a step in the right direction. Jamie Simpson, thank you for joining us on BookMe. Thank you so much, Costas. Jamie Simpson is the author of Eating Wild in Eastern Canada, A Guide to Foraging the Forests, Fields, and Shorelines. He's also written Restoring the Acadian Forest, A Guide to Forest Stewardship for Woodlot Owners in Eastern Canada, and Journeys Through Eastern Old Growth Forests. Jamie has received several awards for his conservation work. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just pop bookme with an exclamation mark in your search engine. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. It's produced by Robin Grant 
and Lynn Fox forages and harvests all the uhs and the ums from these interviews. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read.